Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is CBC Radio. From coast to coast through the CBC Radio Network and around the world on shortwave, this is As It Happens. Good evening, this is As It Happens. As It Happens. This is As It Happens. As It Happens. Hello. This is As It Happens. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happened, the November edition. You are probably familiar with our archive show, As It Happened, where we thumb through the As It Happens greats and pull out some of the most memorable moments from this program's long and illustrious history. Well, we're bringing you a special new As It Happened podcast mm-hmm. in this feed where we'll revisit some of the most surprising and fascinating conversations from the month that was and dust off a few gems from our archives. Right now, we're looking forward to looking back at the month of November. In this episode, we will go where only a bold few have gone before, highlighting rare encounters from the remote mountains of Indonesia to a secret back room in Florence, Italy. I like that room. You'll hear my conversation with a British man who has custom-made a one-of-a-kind archive of the UK's weirdest customs, my personal favorite being a relaxing event in which people run through the streets carrying oil barrels on their shoulders. That's what I did last weekend. I don't know. I wasn't sick at all. That's why I was just away. We'll also get an invitation to an exclusive book club whose members dedicated the last 28 years to reading James Joyce's unforgettable, unintelligible novel, (laughs) Finnegan's Wake. All that and much more on this November edition of the As It Happened podcast, where the stories are rare, but also well done. When someone describes an echidna, frankly, it sounds made up. You've got to imagine a hybrid animal that has the spines of a hedgehog, the snout of an anteater, and the feet of a mole. And then you have something that looks a bit like an echidna. That was biologist James Kempton, and that wasn't a complete list of echidna idiosyncrasies. The primitive mammals also lay eggs, nurse their young despite not having nipples, and the males have four-headed penises. In November, Neil spoke with Mr. Captain about the very real and very weird species, which is extremely rare, mostly because of everything I just mentioned. Not sure what role the penis plays, but I'm sure it's not helping. Anyway, Attenborough's long-beaked echidna, named after Sir David Attenborough, is so rare that it had never been photographed, which is why James Kempton led a team of scientists on a treacherous expedition into Indonesia's Cyclops Mountains to find the echidnatic enigma. I mean, the enigmatic echidna. James, how does one react when when they see the first ever photographic evidence of Attenborough's long-beaked echidna? Well, that does actually depend on uh, how hard you've looked for it. <laughs> and, uh, and you've looked pretty looked hard. Very, <laughs> we looked pretty hard. Uh, three and a half years of planning for this expedition, four weeks of grueling fieldwork, and after four weeks of grueling fieldwork, no pictures of echidna. It wasn't until the final SD card that we collected from the uh, final camera of the final day of our final ascent of the Cyclops Mountains that we found those pictures. So 
I was going to say joy, but it's actually intense relief first and then joy. (laughs) You talked about how difficult uh, it was just to get to that point. Tell our listeners what those difficulties were, because, uh, yeah, we're not talking about just a difficult climb or, or bad weather. No, we were beset by a lot of difficulties. So there were earthquakes. Uh, a team member caught malaria. Um, terrible insect bites. Uh, one member broke his hand uh, in two places. Um, probably worst of all, one of the team members had a leech in his eye no. for 33 hours. This was this was Gison Morib, a fantastic student from the local university, Unchen, who had done amazing preliminary work for the expedition, finding the places that we should look for the echidna and helping us to deploy over 80 remote cameras in the field and uh, who's going to be a key author on the paper that we're about to write. And he had a leech in his eye for 33 hours, uh, which resisted <laughs> um, tweezers, salt water, no. medical saline, and we had to get him back to hospital in the end, where it finally succumbed to ethanol. How are they doing right now? He is he is fine uh, because he uh, got the ethanol in the eye, the leech came off, and he came straight back on the expedition. Wow. He's an impressive man. Yes, certainly. The whole team sounds sounds pretty impressive. Are you a superstitious person, though? Because as you listed all of those things, I thought at some point you might say maybe we're not supposed to do this. <laughs> well, um, we were absolutely supposed to do it. And, and the reason I, I can say that very confidently is because we had coll- we collaborated with um, the, the indigenous people in the Cyclops yeah. Mountains for over two years to achieve this. And we had um, their absolute consent to do this work and they supported it all along. So uh, I know that uh, this was an expedition well done. Oh, absolutely. What, what, what did they tell you about what echidnas mean to them, the importance in their culture? Well, they have a a great folklore associated with echidnas. Perhaps the most interesting story, the one that stands out the most, is that the echidna plays a part in a conflict resolution ritual, traditionally. So if there's a conflict between clans, a member of one clan is sent to find an echidna, and if a member of the other clan is sent to find a marlin, a sea fish, both species are really hard to find, can take decades. Um, and so when they are found, there is this great sense of a conflict resolved mm-hmm. through great effort. Um, uh, and that, so that's the tradition, one of the traditional roles the echidna plays, or Attenborough's long-beat echidna plays, in the community of Yongsu Sapare, uh, one of the indigenous communities of the Cyclops. That was James Kempton, a biologist who led the successful expedition to find Attenborough's long-beaked echidna. It's often the case that when you're searching for something elusive like Mr. Kempton and his team were, you have to travel to a far and uncharted place to find it. But earlier this year, we spoke to a woman who sees something banishingly rare every time she walks out her front door at night. In February, we called up Mari Hughes, one of the few residents of the remote Welsh island of Anis Entle, where the sky is otherworldly dark. So Neil asked her to do us a favor. Mari, I wonder if you could step outside for us. Yeah, no problem. And so now you're you're outside in, in one of the darkest places on the planet. What is that like? Uh, it's quite exceptional, really. I mean, you never get used to it. I've I've been living on the island for almost four years, and I'm still, you know, when I see it, it still takes my breath away. Is it is it pitch black? Are you seeing stars? Can you just describe it for us? 
it's a clear night tonight, a uh, new moon, so that makes it even darker because, you know, it's only a slither of a moon and I can see Venus and Jupiter to the right of the moon. And yeah, above me, it's very clear and I can see many stars. Um, it takes a while for your eyes to adjust. Yeah, if I were to lie down here now without a light for 20 minutes, there would be so many stars I couldn't count them. <laughs> oh, it sounds spectacular. It sounds dreamy, really. You, you've been working to, to get this designation for your area as a dark sky sanctuary. So people have never, maybe you never heard that phrase, dark sky sanctuary. What will that designation mean for the island? Yeah, it's a designation awarded by the Dark Sky Association. Um, and it's the, there are many types of designations. So you can have a dark sky community or a dark sky park. But a dark sky sanctuary designation means it's the darkest designation. So really for the island, it means that we can protect what we have here for nature and for future generations um, because it's becoming something very rare in the Western world. I don't know how it is in Canada, but in Europe, 99% of the population residents to Europe live in the light polluted skies, which is, you know, something that's changed dramatically only in the last hundred years really so yeah it's really important that we protect what we have here what makes Eli so dark how have you been able to keep it that dark yeah the island is off-grid um and there are 11 houses on the island that were built 150 years ago so most of the houses still don't have electricity in them it's very very limited external lighting on the island and then the geography of the island means that there's a mountain between us and the mainland. So in a way that shields us from any light pollution that would be coming from the mainland. Yeah, it's a collection of lots of things that means that we can have such a dark sky on the island. Why do you want to make sure that the island stays that way? Because as you know, a lot of smaller communities, they, you know, to them progress means more jobs, you know, more people moving there. And to have those things, you have to build more buildings and bring in infrastructure. But you don't want that for this island. Why? Um, it's not that we don't want progress. It's just that the designation will allow us to manage any progress in a kind of positive way. So as part of the application, I had to write a light management plan. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we can't have any external lights on the island in the future. It just means that any lights that we might install is kind of managed um, accordingly. So, say, three principles is that any light is shielded, so it's thrown down to the ground rather than up. You know, there's no light is wasted in a way. Um, and that we would use kind of sensor technology, so it's only on when it's needed. And that it needs to be like an orange light rather than a blue or a white light. That's better for, for nature. So, yeah, it's not about, um, you know, staying in the dark ages, as you'd say. <laughs> it's just about prote protecting what we have and then any, man any developments to do that mindfully in the future. That was Mari Hughes speaking to Neil when Onus Entle became the first place in Europe to be named an international dark sky sanctuary in February 2023. You're listening to As It Happened, the November edition, a monthly podcast where we look and listen back at the month that was. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. 
For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Ms. Hughes might not want to keep Anis Entley in the Dark Ages, but life there sounds like a rare window into what life was like hundreds of years ago. A simpler time when the nights were dark and people carried barrels filled with burning hay on their backs just for fun. That's actually one of countless weird folk traditions that people in communities all over the British Isles took part in back in, uh, sorry, just a sec, let me see when exactly, ah, here it is, back in times of yore. And ever since, people in those communities have kept those eccentric, age-old folk traditions alive. But only one man knows about every single one of them, folklorist Doc Rowe. He has spent the last 60 years attending and documenting hundreds of those events, and he's compiled a huge archive of these British folk customs, including thousands of hours of rare footage. Neil spoke with Doc Rowe in November. Doc, obviously, uh, I asked the question, why, a lot, but this this one's different. Why would anyone want to strap a burning barrel to their back? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of, rather like many of these uh, events in, in the British Isles, there are lots of legends, if you like, mm-hmm. that are uh, uh, quite frequently not based on any kind of fact. In Ottery, they, they, they seem to think it was to do with the um, the Armada coming up the coast. And uh, a young man running with a uh, a camel inside a barrel, mm. uh, but unfortunately the barrel had been used in a butcher's shop, so it was lined with straw, and it ignited. Oh. And so as he got closer and closer to the uh, uh, the beacon, uh, it was blazing on his back. So mm. there is what well, that's one story. Other stories, it was a, a contest between the two two villages of Ottery and St Mary. But we'll never know, as they say. Oh. Well, as part of your work, do you do you try everything? Have you tried this? Well, I've, I've run... I did carry one once. Um, it's quite, quite exhilarating because yeah, the faster you run with it on your shoulders, of course, the flames leap out the back, so you're quite well protected. <laughs> exhilarating, it, terrifying. I mean, it's different for everyone, I guess. Well, as I say, what, what's uh, interesting, or, or you know, obviously obvious, I suppose, is that the people in front of you step out the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. But, I bet. You know, the only the only protection the uh, men use is, is they have um, potato sacks folded over and over. And my my hands and wrists are, are very nicely scarred from just taking photographs of the event. And um, it started actually. I, I was interested in traditional song in my native Devon. Uh, I always say I was rather uh, disappointed or angered by the BBC because they were telling me all these things had died out. And yet I knew a few miles over on Dartmoor there were singers and dancers that uh, were performing and, and speaking a dialect, you know. Yeah, you wanted, days, to, you, you wanted to document, you wanted to make sure everyone knew that, that these existed. But I never consciously set out to it. I, mm-hmm. I so enjoyed and, and um, you know, say disappointed by the media telling me it had all died out. And so I started documenting it. I bought a, a tape recorder very early on. Uh, and it was until probably the late 70s that people started acknowledging that I had this enormous collection of material that 
uh, had not been, you know, not been done, really. When you talk about your archive, just how, how vast is it? Uh, well, it was three furniture van moves in 2010, wow. moving it from Sheffield, where it was based, up to Whitley. Uh, it was something like 26 tons. That's including a few filing cabinets, of course. 20,000 uh, books, 4,000 cassette tapes, 3,500 hours of, of reel-to-reel uh, audio that you've recorded? At least, yeah, wow. yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk a little bit more and talk about some of the other events, so our listeners can imagine them. Uh, and I've certainly seen some of these as I was reading up for this conversation. Take us to Scotland and the Bury Man. Well, the Bury Man is an extraordinary thing. I mean, it mm-hmm. really is. Um, uh, a man actually puts himself forward to the Ferry Fair Committee to 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 um, do this arduous task of walking through the streets of South Queensbury. Uh, encased in burrs, you know, the burdock seeds, yeah. rather like nature's Velcro. And it takes about an hour or so to to dress him. Um, and then he goes out on the streets at nine o'clock and he finishes up somewhere around about seven o'clock at night, having walked a, a good nine-mile route, quite painful as well. The only part of his anatomy uh, uncovered is his hands. And he um, he collects money, of course, but mm-hmm. also uh, partakes in unmeasured glasses of whiskey. Well, you need to, I would imagine, to be walking around covered in burrs all day. Yeah, um, and uh, I have the um, extraordinary honour of... Um, I've outlived a lot of the local people that knew how to dress him, and, of course, I've witnessed it over the years. I'm now, I think, I'm now the 15th year of being the official dresser. Oh. It must be hard for you, too. You, you, there are lots of cuts yeah. involved. Uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, there are now four glasses on the trays of whiskey, so uh, I, I have that ordeal of um, sharing the whiskies. That was Doc Rowe speaking to Neil about his vast archive of UK folklore traditions. Now, I'm not sure if Jerry Fialka and Doc Rowe have ever crossed paths with or without a barrel full of flaming hay on their backs, but it feels like they would get along famously if they ever did. Like Mr. Rowe, Mr. Fialka appreciates odd and unusual pastimes, and he's currently a participant in an odd event that could easily be added to Mr. Rowe's catalogue of eccentric endeavours. Mr. Fialka has spent the last 28 years and counting in a book club dedicated to reading James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. And as he told Neil, the famously challenging, gibberish-jammed text is a thrilling adventure. All 628 pages of it. What word would you use to describe the last 28 years you've spent reading Finnegan's Wake? Oh, that's a great question. And you're going to read Finnegan's Wake right now. You don't have to spend 28 years by repeating this word that's in Finnegan's Wake. Laugh tears. Laugh tears. There you go. You read the whole book. (laughs) That is a, a way that Joyce conveyed what the human experience is. The human condition is that you fall and then you get back up. You know, as you're describing that, it certainly sounds a lot like the range of emotions we have on this program every day. 
Well, that's exactly why you're, you're exactly what Finnegan's Wake is. You're trying to study the hidden psychic effects of radio. It's not producing the content. It's how you're making your audience feel. So the name of your show exactly nails Finnegan's Wake. As it happens, IT stands for information technology, or <laughs> what is it? It. It's what's happening right now. Uh, and, and Neil, we're, we're, we are living in the moment. That is what's important, is you live in the moment. You take a deep breath and consciously right now. One, two, three. <sighs> And release. <laughs> it's a breathwork class in here now. But is that is we, that why you love do. Finnegan's Wake so much? Because it, it you know, you, with this group of people that's been with you over these twenty eight years, that you're that you're living these moments together. Right. We we live in the present. Like right, me me and you right now, we're living in the present and we're consciously listening and talking. So when you consciously read a book with a group of people out loud, you're more aware of what the words are doing to you, not so much the content. So that's why people go, well, the book is just gibberish. No, there's content, and this is who, you know, a great Canadian, and many Canadians have helped me understand all of this, Marshall McLuhan, Joyce took an eye experience reading black ink on white paper and turned it into an ear experience. You're looking at the black ink on white paper, but you're also hearing it mispronunciated by other people in the group. You're like going, oh, I wouldn't have pronounced that word this way. Let me ask you, Jerry, how do you go about tackling this text. You read a page or two out loud with a group of people. You listen to what everybody's reading, and then you discuss it. That yeah. The middle part's sort of not so important. You're, mm -hmm. like, trying to figure out what gibberish means. But there's a lot of meaning. I mean, there's you can buy a BMW and a car by writing books about what you think the wake is about. <laughs> so people <laughs> think there's a lot of content there. I, I tend to say there's no content. It's as Sam Beckett mm -hmm. says, it's language about language. It's not about something. It is something. It's reading. In fact, McLuhan was crossing the border once, and the custom officer says, hey, dude, you, you know Timothy Leary. Do you got any? He goes, what? LSD? No. I don't, I don't do LSD, <laughs> but my friends who read Finnegan's Wake Out Loud say that it's like having a psychedelic experience. Uh, so no, no LSD is consumed during your meetings when you read just, no, it's just the experience. No, you just <laughs> Some reading clubs drink wine or drink beer, but you you can do whatever you want. It's like a party. You're sitting around singing songs together. Sounds like pretty great. Like a hootenanny. From November, Neil speaking with Jerry Fialka about his book club that has been reading James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake for 28 years and counting. As you just heard, regardless of how tedious it may be, art can be a comfort. And even if it's an endless reading of gibberish, repetition can be a useful tool to steady the mind. You might even say repetition can be a useful tool to steady the mind. It's an idea Michelangelo experimented with as well. In 1530, the famous artist angered the Medici family, which made him a wanted man. So he spent months hiding out, holed up in a small room in Florence, trying to avoid a death sentence. And during that time, he drew on the walls to pass the time. 
To date, those rare sketches have only been seen by a handful of people. But in November, Bargello Museums in Florence decided to open Michelangelo's hideout to the public on a by-appointment basis. Neil spoke with the museum's director, Paola D'Agostino, about the rare sketches. Paola, I've seen some photographs of these sketches and this room, but what is it like for you to actually stand there and take it all in? It's breathtaking. It's like stepping back through a time machine and having in front of you a 3D sketchbook uh, of this amazing period in which supposedly Michelangelo spent time in there. It's under the new sacristy, which is one of Michelangelo's best masterpieces. And if you are in the sacristy, you would never guess that there is another room behind a door. Let's just tell our listeners who haven't seen the images yet what you see in these sketches. What do they depict? Well, the sketches are made in charcoal and red charcoal. When you start walking into the room and turn back, for instance, you see an amazing over-life-size sketch of a nude male figure. Uh, And then you see a series of sketches and memories of parts of Michelangelo's works, like details from the Sistine Chapel ceiling, a female profile that has been connected with a study for Lida and the Swan, and an over-life-size sketch of the head of the Laocon, uh, which is an ancient sculpture that was unearthed at the beginning of the 16th century in the Vatican. Are those kinds of connections to some of his other famous works, is that why you're convinced that these were sketched by Michelangelo? Because there has been some debate about you know, how, how you can know for sure. Yeah, in fact, we don't know for sure. And the beauty of it is that now each visitor who will enter the secret room will be somehow a guest of honor in this debate. Um, I personally believe that some are by Michelangelo. I don't know if they are all by him, but some have a very close and nervous way of drawing and a connection with some of the works that he was carving in marble. This room, if I'm not mistaken, has been part of of the museum for quite some time now, decades. Um, So how were the sketches eventually discovered? Because from what I was reading, basically stuff was piled in that room. But how could that happen in in this special of a room? (laughs) The room was a sort of like storage place. And the then director, Paolo Dal Poggetto, in 1975, was searching for a new exit. Once he realized that that space was not possibly used as a new exit, he then saw a door and they decided to empty the space and see what what Mm -hmm. was in. And the moment they started emptying the space, he noticed some marks on the wall. This sort of like allure of mystery has stayed on because the room was not open to the public and not easily accessible because it's a very delicate space. Occasionally, they have been open to the public, but always without a specific regulated way. 
There's so much beauty in Florence, so much art, so much history, obviously, and, and you're with it all of the time. So did it surprise you to be surprised by something like this? Uh, I think what surprises me the most is that every time I go there, I keep being surprised, <laughs> even though I know what I am expecting. And this is a feeling that often happens in Florence when you are daily surrounded daily by masterpieces, mm -hmm. but in that room, I think it's really once in a lifetime, for me at least. From November, Neil speaking with Paola D'Agostino, director of Bargello Museums in Florence, Italy, about rare Michelangelo sketches. And that brings us to the end of this special As It Happened podcast. The show was produced by John McGill, Devin Nguyen, and our technician, Reynold Gonzalez, with help from us, Austin Webb, and Zian Iras. You can hear another special As It Happened <laughs> episode in this podcast feed at the end of next month. I'm Chris Houghton. Of course, you can also catch our regular show on CBC Radio 1 every night and the CBC Listen app as well, or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Neil Kirksal. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.